when others look at you and I, they should first and foremost see a life that has been transformed, a life that is fully consecrated, a life that is a radical departure from the culture around us and is entirely given over to live for Him. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Over the last few weeks, we have been steadily working our way through the book of Romans, and today we come to Romans chapter 13, and we're reading from verses 8 to the end of the chapter at verse 14. You'll find it on page 1765 of the Church Bible. The Apostle Paul writes these words, Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber, because your salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ, and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from His Holy Word. I wonder if you have ever had the experience of hearing a song that you knew as a child, or a teenager perhaps, and when you heard it, your imagination went back all those years to the time you first knew it. You remembered every lyric, you remembered where you were that summer, who your friends were, who the other hits in the charts were that year, and it transported you back all that time. Happened to me about 10 days ago, when for the first time in decades, I came across a hit by the monkeys called Daydream Believer. And some of you will remember it, and it came out when I was seven years old, I think I'm struggling a little with my memory because I don't think I remember it from being seven, but maybe nine or ten. And I remembered the friends I was playing with. I remember those long summer holidays uh, playing with friends, and it all came rushing back. And when I was thinking of that, I was reminded how precious those memories can be. And some of you have memories going back to the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and so on and music will pull you back there quickly. 
Can you remember what was the number one best-selling single for the decade of the 50s? It was Don't Be Cruel and Hound Dog by Elvis Presley, followed quickly by Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock. In the 1960s, most of us know that Elvis and the Beatles battled it out for almost a decade, but it's not Elvis or the Beatles who hold the number one spot. It is Chubby Checker. And see? I got down and up, and only just, but I made it. Chubby Checker. 1970s. We're thinking, of course, it's got to be the Bee Gees, Saturday Night Fever. Uh-uh. No. It was, are you ready? Hold on to your seat. Debbie Boone, You Light Up My Life. Who would have thought that was the number one best-selling single for the entirety of the 1970s? According to Billboard uh, uh, Marketing Company, I checked it yesterday, and in the 2000s, who was it? We Belong Together, Mariah Carey. And that tells me your age because no one is laughing and you don't remember it at all. <laughs> now, some of you with a very strict Baptist background are looking at me this morning and none of this meant anything to you. Because when you were growing up, you were all allowed to watch Hee Haw and Loris Welk show. And basically that was it. Memories, special moments, abound in the book of Romans. And I suspect the congregation in Rome that Paul was writing to in the year 64 or 65 AD would remember so much of what he has written. But I think the latter half of Romans 13 is possibly the most challenging section in this entire book. Paradoxically, it's both encouraging and seriously challenging. And what you will find this morning as we work our way through this passage, that I will very quickly move from preaching to meddling. And the passage does exactly that, so bear with me. In chapters 12, you know that there's a significant shift in the thinking of the apostle. As we come to 12 and 13 and 14, the apostle outlines for us two concepts. And the first is this, consecration. And we looked at it three, four weeks ago when we first started chapter 12, consecration. And consecration is one of those wonderful Christian words that we like, but we're not entirely certain what it means. So, let me give you a working definition of consecration. Consecration is a radical separation from a secular worldview to a godly purpose and mindset. Let me say it again. Consecration is a radical separation from a secular worldview to a godly purpose and mindset. And that's the first concept he introduces in chapter 12, and we'll look at it again this morning in a couple of minutes. And the second is, consecration is first, transformation is the second. And transformation is this, a deliberate determination to intentionally think biblically and act accordingly. Deliberate determination to intentionally think biblically 
and then act accordingly. Thinking biblically is always healthy, but it's not enough. We have to then apply it to our lives. In other words, as you've heard me say multiple times, our walk must equal our talk. And those are the two concepts that Paul lays out in chapter 13, this latter section of it. And we'll come back to them several times this morning. He begins verse 8, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. In chapter 12, verse 9, he said it in an almost identical fashion. He said, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And the Apostle Paul knows this, that we learn through repetition. And he's telling us in quick succession to love one another. Now, if you were here three or four Sundays ago, you remember I tried to give you a working definition for love. Because, again, it's one of those wonderful words, but what does it mean in a daily setting? How do we take it and really apply it to our lives in order that we might be what? Consecrated and transformed. And to love someone means this, that we are intentionally seeking the best and the highest good for that person. Let me say it again. We are intentionally seeking the best and highest good for that person. Now, let me give you two sides of a coin this morning. And the first is this, that love at times must be tough. Must be tough. Love doesn't pretend. Love is not about theater. It's not about wearing a mask and pretense, as we've said. Love at times must be tough. Love is not always about making the individual feel comfortable. It's not always about telling them, yes. Tough, times firm, stern, unwilling to look the other way and pretend it didn't happen. That's not love. Love at times must be tough. Now, the other side of that same coin is this, that love must also be tender, filled with compassion and empathy. Love must also be marked by grace and forgiveness and going the extra mile. And when toughness and tenderness in biblical terms comes together, then you're heading in the right direction to understand what Paul is meaning here when he says, let no debt remain outstanding, love one another. And then he takes it a step further, and notice what he says. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. Love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, seek after genuine, authentic love. That's the first part of the passage. And so far, so good, and we can nod and say, yep, this is good. But when we move into verse 11, Paul takes us to another level entirely. And where he's about to take us is challenging, to say the least. And if you will follow 
verses 11 through 14, you are in for a lifetime of work, of God refining and shaping and fashioning you into that place where you live daily with consecration and transformation. It is a spectacular challenge, but it's right there. Probably 10, 12, 15 years ago now, I can't quite remember, I read a book by Dr. James Dobson, and many of you will know Dr. Dobson through his ministry, Focus on the Family. And in one of his books, the chapter was looking at what is the difference between the urgent and the important. And he begins by telling a story of a gynecologist. He was pretty much in the early years of his medical career. He just set up a new practice. He had two or three partners, and it seemed as if they were busy, 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 day after day after day. They'd become very popular, number of patients coming their way, and life was exceedingly busy. For about three and a half weeks, this particular gynecologist, his wife had been complaining of some discomfort in her abdominal area. And she really was feeling unwell, and he said, okay, let me check with Tom, who's a good family friend, and see if he will see you. And he said, I'll phone Tom in the morning, and we'll get something organized. And when he came home from work that night, she said, well, what time is my appointment? Oh, I forgot entirely. I definitely will phone tomorrow. Came in from work the following day. Well, what time? Oh, I, for I will phone him now. So he phoned Tom at home. He said, Tom, I'm sorry to do this. Uh, Lindsay has not been feeling well. She's got some significant pain uh, in her tummy area. I'm wise enough to know not to treat your own family. Uh, any possibility you could squeeze her in for an examination and appointment tomorrow? And he said, sure. Ask her to come around 4, 4.30, and uh, most of my patients will be away. I'll make sure I see her then. Sure enough, thorough examination. Uh, she went home, and when the doctor came in that night, he said, well, what did Tom say? And he said, I'm five months pregnant. This was a gynecologist who missed the fact that his wife was expecting. In fact, James Dobson finishes the story by saying, I do not know where he got the time to be a father in the first place. <sighs> he missed his own wife being pregnant. And he goes on then, Dobson, to talk about the difference between the urgent and the important. My sense is that for many of us today, we are just so busy running from one thing to another, to another, to another, that when God slows us down and He gets our attention and we spend time on a Sunday morning in His presence, opening up His Word, He's tapping us in the shoulder, listen, I need you to pay attention. That's what's going on in the verses from verse 11 through 14. He's getting our attention. He's arresting us and saying, listen, please pay attention. Look at it. And he said, and to do this, understanding the present time, the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. When Paul writes, and you need to understand the present time. 
There are two New Testament Greek words for time. One is chronology, chronos, which we use and felt this morning when the alarm clock went off. That's chronos, and we lost an hour overnight. And the other is kiros, which means opportunity. Understand the opportunity which lies before you. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, wake up, pay attention. God is at work. And to this young church in Rome, probably one major church with 25, 30 peoples meeting in a home and various churches throughout the city, he's writing to them to say, pay attention to what God is doing. You are at the heart of the largest empire known to humanity. You can influence the lawmakers. You have opportunity to get alongside senators and the ruling nobility in the class, as well as nobility and slaves. You have an opportunity to live for Christ in a consecrated and transformed manner, because they will look at your life long before they will listen to what you have to say. What is your life saying? Is your walk equaling your talk? That's exactly what he's saying. And he's saying, wake up, look around you, look at the culture. What music is being released today? What's happening in the cinema? What books are you reading? What sports are you following? What is going on in the culture around you? And are you living for Christ in the middle of it? That's what he's saying to us this morning. Wake up. Now, the analogy develops, and I like the way the Apostle Paul develops the analogy, and the analogy is this. It's almost as if we're lying in bed on a Sunday morning, and the alarm goes off, and we think, oh, do I have to get up? And the answer is, yes, you have to get up. And you switch off the alarm, and you look at the time, and then you get washed and changed. And then you stand in front of your wardrobe, and what do you do? You decide what you're going to wear and what you're not going to wear. Now, about seven days ago, I looked in my closet wardrobe, and I was shocked. And I was shocked for this reason, that I realized for the first time in my adult life that after you hang garments in the wardrobe and they are untouched for 12 months, they shrink. <laughs> Everybody knows this. It's a universal law. I never had this problem in Scotland. I'm putting it down to the heat here in the south. <laughs> they shrink. What is going on? And of course, I try to bring some affirmation to myself and think, well, that was a little tight when I bought it in the first place. And it wasn't, but I'm trying to convince myself. And Paul is saying, wake up. You have choices to make. We stand in front of the wardrobe in the morning, and we have choices to make. What is appropriate for my activity that day? If you're playing sports, you dress appropriately. If you're going for a job interview, you dress appropriately. If you're coming to church, you dress appropriately. And I know you know this because none of you have come this morning in your pajamas. None of you. And some of you are going, thank goodness the person beside me didn't come in their pajamas. Dress appropriately. And that analogy continues in Paul's language. Look at it. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. 
So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Paul is saying, wake up, pay attention. You have a choice to make. There are decisions which lie in front of you. Put to one side the deeds of darkness and put on a consecrated, transformed, Christ-like, authentic, credible lifestyle. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. But he moves from the principle to the specifics, and notice what he says. And if you were reading the passage when we read it, first of all, you will know that he does move from preaching to meddling, and here it comes. Notice what he says. He becomes very specific. Verse 13, let us behave decently, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Well, let's unpack it. What is he saying here? He is painting the picture in graphic details. What does he say? Let us behave decently as in the daytime. Put to one side the deeds of darkness and wear the armor of light. He talked in there of orgies and drunkenness. Let me deal with drunkenness first of all. Paul is not describing here a glass of wine when you have friends over to your home for a meal some evening. That's not what he's describing. What he is describing is this. He's describing addiction. He's describing a breakdown in personal discipline. When alcohol dominates your private life and the life of your family, and you and those around you suffer from the dysfunctionality of addiction, and you can no longer live in decency or a consecrated or transformed life. I've shared this with you before, so please forgive me for sharing it again. When I grew up, my father was an alcoholic. I would never encourage anyone to have to go through what we went through as a family. The addiction, the violence, the dysfunction that came from overindulgence in alcohol is awful. Ask any child of an alcoholic, and they will tell you of the horrendous experience of living through it. That's what Paul is talking about. He's being specific. He's being intentional. He's saying, do not go there live as a child of the light, put on the armor of light, of Christian faith, of dedication, of commitment, of authenticity, of credibility. Put to one side the deeds of darkness. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Clothe yourself with the armor of light. Clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. When I was five years old, going to school for the first time, I distinctly remember my mother dressing me that morning. I put on my 
underwear, and then I had what we had in Scotland. It was a very woolly and itchy t-shirt, and then she put on a shirt, and then a school tie, and a pair of long hand-knitted gray socks that came up to my knees, and then a pair of pants, and then a hand-knitted gray sweater to match the socks went on top. My mother was a prodigious knitter, and I've told you this before, I am one of five, and I am pretty certain she knitted my youngest brother. I'm pretty certain of that. And then on top of the sweater would go what we called a school blazer, a sports coat, and then a ski mask, although the face was cut out so you could recognize the face, but it came round, it was wool, it went over the top, and then a heavy wool duffel coat went on top, the hood came up, the clasp came over, and then to crown the whole affair, a hand-knitted gray scarf that matched the socks and the jumper was put on backwards, crossed behind me, and then pinned here and here with a large safety pin, and some of you will remember they were used for diapers in the 1960s, and they were pinned at the back. And then, dangling out the edge of each arm was knitted mittens, gray, of course, to match the jumper and everything else, and they went with a piece of elastic up one sleeve, across the back, and down the other, so I couldn't lose them. And then, a school satchel was put on first in here, and then eventually through here, and I would go to school like this. I had so many layers of clothes, and my teacher, as I now think back as an adult, I have, my sympathy for her is growing year after year. She had 26 children in her class. She did not start teaching till 10 a.m. because it took her fully an hour to strip off each child and put on the garments in the cloakroom, and so it went on. But my point in all of that silliness is this, that when the teacher saw you coming, she didn't really see the child, she saw the clothes, she saw the exterior. And what Paul is saying here is this, when others look at you and I, they should first and foremost see a life that has been transformed a life that is fully consecrated, a life that is a radical departure from the culture around us and is entirely given over to live for Him. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on Him. That's the message of this passage. That's the challenge this morning, to be intentionally sold out for Him. Wake up, daydream believer. Focus on Him. Seek to be consecrated, to radically, intentionally separate yourself from the world around you and be transformed into the individual who is intentional and deliberate about living for Him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, it never fails to amaze us that on a Sunday morning as we spend time in Your Word, You speak to us, comforting some weeks, other weeks challenging, other weeks reassuring. And Father, we know this, that when we take a stand for You, you will strengthen us. 
you will enable us. You will sustain us. Father, may that be our experience this week, for we ask it in and through the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. First Presbyterian Church in downtown Greenville invites you to Holy Week services Thursday, April 2nd at 7.30 p.m. for a communion service and Easter Sunday, April 5th at 8, 9, 15, 9, 30, 10, 45, and 11 a.m. More information at Easter at FPC.com. Have you missed a Sunday? Go to our website to watch previous broadcasts, download a podcast, or purchase a CD or DVD. And don't forget to connect with First Pres by liking us on Facebook and Twitter, signing up to receive emails, or requesting prayer online.